Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal & Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Good afternoon. This is Sarah Stogner. I've got with me today Harold Flanagan of Flanagan and Flanagan Partners. And Harold, thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation. You're actually one of my favorite people to pick the brain of when I have a complex indemnity or insurance coverage issue. And I've picked the brains of all the folks at my firm. You're one of my favorite people to call. So thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So can you, for those of us, or for those that aren't necessarily in the legal industry, can you just give them a little bit of background on your education, how you ended up here, and and what your practice primarily consists of? Sure. With a business degree, I obviously went to the Marine Corps and spent 10 years as an infantry officer. And after getting tired of leaving my wife and kids all the time, I looked for a professional job that I thought would be intellectually stimulating and would be interesting. My old man was a lawyer, my brother's a lawyer, so I decided to go to law school. Somehow got in and did well in school and got a job at a big firm here in New Orleans. Spent about 13 or 14 years there, starting out as a casualty lawyer. And what does that mean? Mostly an oil field defense lawyer, a lawyer who would be hired by an oil company to defend a property or bodily injury claim in the oil field. And so oftentimes your defense costs or your attorney's fees would have then been paid by an insurance company. Oftentimes that is the case. The particular market we were in caused us usually to be paid directly by the oil company. So these were oftentimes, this is non-traditional, oftentimes not insured claims or claims in which the policyholder oil company had a lot of stroke in the market and could dictate which lawyer got to perform the services for that particular case. So, you know, it's funny. We were we were talking before we started recording about what are we going to talk about today? And part of our mantra in recording these episodes is to let it be a natural conversation that goes where it goes. And so you've brought up an interesting point, and I'm just going to sidetrack you immediately because I think it's important and that our listeners might be interested in it. And that's having policyholders, any type of energy-related company in this instance, have the ability to dictate counsel that it wants to defend it in the event of a loss. And so kind of a practice tip, and I'll maybe pick your brain on how you advise your clients, is how do you successfully include a choice of counsel endorsement on a policy to make sure that in the event something happens, your counsel of choice you're allowed to have your counsel of choice and then the insurance company pay for it for your defense costs. There's a two-level response to that. First of all, I'm on record as saying the following. You have to be slinging a whole lot of premium around in the market to have the leverage to negotiate your choice of lawyer into the policy. 
To some extent, it depends on how aggressively a policyholder demands that right in the contract negotiation. So, But it's something you have to ask for, right? If you don't ask for it, you're certainly not going to get it because the insurance companies do not like to give that right. They want to appoint counsel for, for an insured claim from their panel, a panel whose rates they can control and whose quality is known to them. Some people do not want a lawyer assigned to them by somebody else. They want to go to the people that they trust. And there's a challenge there. And not only is there a challenge, but there's also a benefit that I think goes unrecognized. And that is an attorney that the client has a relationship with already understands the client's business. They understand the people who have the information that's needed. And so the hourly rate may be more, but the overall cost may not increase significantly or it may be less because they don't have to go and do all the background investigation and discussions and can be a lot more efficient in that representation. I agree with you. I don't think insurance companies would see it that way. I'm sure they wouldn't. If I see it that way, the insurance companies probably don't, right? We're in the same end of that market. I would expect insurance companies who are very tradition-bound and conservative in, in, in almost every respect to reject the notion that it actually makes sense to allow a policyholder to pick its own lawyer. Now, as to that point, number one, the duty to defend that's contained within a liability policy most of the time, an upfront pay on behalf of, as we say, duty to defend, is provided by providing conflict-free and competent counsel. And so an insurance company doesn't honor its obligation to its policyholder when the policyholder is sued and the insurance company points a lawyer who doesn't know what he or she is doing. Two times challenge lawyers for that reason. No, I completely agree. And I think that part of our job is to help educate people so that they know what to ask for and understand the rationale behind it. So the conclusion is for those out there that are involved in the negotiation of insurance to ask their broker that a choice of counsel listing uh, be included within their policies. Is that kind of a short, succinct summary that's fair? Yes. Oh, good. Good deal. Okay. So now that we've taken that sidetrack, what does your day-to-day practice look like now? These days, it's about 75% transactional and 25% energy litigation or construction litigation. So my practice with several other lawyers in our 11-person firm is oil and gas construction and insurance recovery, as the suing insurance companies on behalf of policyholders. My favorite kind. It's God's work. <laughs> and on the insurance recovery, it's almost all litigation. And on the construction end in oil and gas, it's mostly these days transactional. With me supervising either the lawyers appointed by an insurance company to defend my client, and that's a, probably, a, we ought to delete that and say, My practice now with respect to litigation, the 25% I do in litigation, is looking over the shoulder of lawyers who've been appointed to represent my client by the insurance company and working with them as they litigate contracts that I drafted and negotiated. So that's a significant part of the, say, 25 or 30% of my practice that's litigation right now. And so for those that don't know that relationship immediately invokes in my mind what we call cumis counsel. So why don't you tell the viewers a little bit about that famous, was that out of a California? That was a California, right? That, That famous California case and kind of what it represents and 
where you think the status of that is for our Louisiana, Texas folks, because that's where the bulk of our listeners are. Well, sure. So I use the term Cumas Council to mean both the council that is written into the policy in the contract negotiation and also the council that is assigned to defend an insurance policyholder while there is another lawyer representing the insurance company in the case. And so I think a classic example of when this issue arises is the difference between the four corners of the policy coupled with the four corners of the petition, if there's a lawsuit, right? And that forms our eight corners. And for the listeners, all that means is the duty to defend is determined based on the allegations against you in the lawsuit that's filed and compared with the available coverage in the policy that's going to defend you, right? So eight corners rule. That oftentimes where you see, or I have seen issues, is that six months, 12 months down the road of litigation, there's been counsel that's defending, and then all of a sudden it becomes pretty clear that there's a potential defense at issue in the underlying case or some other fact that comes up that looks like it's going to be a potential defense to actually indemnity, which is paying under the policy, right? So what do you recommend your clients do to kind of address that head on and not wait until you're 6, 12, 18 months into litigation and these issues, worst case, you've had your client go and be deposed and he gives testimony that's really damaging to the indemnity claim, right? So how do you advise your clients on that? First of all, in Louisiana and Texas, the rule is similar. If evidence is discovered during the course of litigation and it looks like it might be damaging to the coverage position, the insurance company might note that even in an innocent report, because keep in mind in the tripartite relationship, the defense counsel assigned by the insurance company will report both to the policyholder and to a claims handler at the home office. That claims handler might send information to the claims committee that he learned from a report indicating that there's not co- that there's not coverage, and that might draw another reservation of rights if one hadn't been issued already. When that happens, I'm particularly aggressive. In Louisiana and Texas, first of all, once there is a substantial conflict of interest, the policyholder is entitled to pick its own lawyer and does not have to rely on its potential opponent, the insurance company, to select that competent and conflict-free lawyer to represent him. So if one of my usual clients has an insured claim, the insurance company, after the fact, notes a potential coverage contest and says it's going to appoint its own lawyer to watch over its own interests in the suit, but the lawyer that they appointed for my client will remain, I have the right in Louisiana and Texas to say, no, Flanagan Partners is going to take over the representation of the client directly in this matter, and you're going to pay our bill because we have no obligation to accept an appointment of a lawyer from our potential adversary. Do you always suggest that, or do you sometimes think that at that point, I mean, and we're assuming that there's been a reservation of rights letter, right? And not a waiver already if the claim was picked up without a reservation. Even then, it gives me heartburn that they're somehow going to avoid it later. But so what about instead of hiring you to come in and assume the defense of the underlying claim, having the client all along have you as coverage counsel – and just kind of overseeing everything to make sure that the 
that they're not taking positions that are contrary to the coverage issues that may be litigated later on? We do that automatically from the very beginning. So if we take a typical claim that one of my clients receives. Right. So let's walk them through a process, right? You you get a call. There's been a blowout offshore. We're always one of the first ones that gets called, right? We should be. We should be. And what happens from there? How do you, how does it usually go? Usually we will have our people, my lawyers investigate, get to the facility, get to the platform, get to the pad as fast as they possibly can. I have an away team. Everybody's got their PPE in a bag and it's ready to move. Me too. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> My duffel bag, right? And so we are marshalling evidence. We're looking at contracts. We're preparing the client for the possibility of an adverse result. Ultimately, if a lawsuit is filed, that lawsuit will be presented to the insurance company who will do the eight quarters analysis and decide whether to A, pick up, as we say, pick up the defense of the claim without a reservation, much more likely pick up the defense subject to a reservation of rights, the ability to later deny indemnity, even though it's providing a defense. Once that happens, we will write to the appointed defense counsel and say, we are the regular counsel for Big Mean Oil Company. You are directed to copy us on all significant reports I want to see briefs three days before they're filed, and I want to be invited to any significant deposition. And we will monitor the case to make sure, A, my client's getting a good defense. B, we are not being maneuvered into a disadvantageous coverage position, either by accident or in some cases on purpose, where some lawyers might be unethically motivated to set up a claim for non-coverage in order to look like a hero. I have not seen that, but I'm aware of the possibility and I'm aware of that happening. Yeah, I think most of the time it's simply defense attorneys who aren't regularly addressing coverage issues just aren't thinking about it. And they're where I see it usually in play is that they're trying to provide a really good defense to the underlying claims. And inadvertently, they think a really brilliant defense to the underlying claim kind of like cut off your nose to spite your face, may be a great defense. But then if that's really what happened, it takes away all available indemnity coverage. It's devastating the coverage. And it prevents a conflict sometimes between me when that has happened, and it has, where the defense attorney says, I'm going to do X. And I have to direct that defense attorney, you may not do that. And I don't mind telling you because your duty is to my, our client and our client alone. You may not do that because you will destroy insurance coverage if you make that argument and the insurance company's watching, I can't let you do it. And it's sort of a crisis. It is, yeah. And it has to be worked out through force of personality, reason, and sometimes just through brinksmanship, if you will, who's going to blink. I don't take that likely, getting into somebody else's business, if you will, and telling he or she how they're going to run a case. Sometimes I have to, and I have in the past, had to write directives in writing, say, you may not do that. And if you have to tell somebody I'm telling you that, that's fine. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think those of us that do this, it's something that we face all the time. So you've been practicing this kind of law for 22 years. What do you think the, let's say the top two pressing issues are 
for those listeners out there. They may not be in risk management. They may not be in legal. Maybe they're operational guys, safety guys. From your perspective, what are the two biggest things that you think that they should be aware of right now? It could be a recent case that's come out or something that you think is trending with the way that insurance coverage is going. Sure. Number one, what I call practical safety management. Everybody has a safety program. Everybody has a two-inch thick safety manual. Everyone is putting the check in the block because you pretty much have to. Yeah, your daily safety. I find that there is significant compliance with the letter of the law and poor compliance overall with practical safety. That is, running realistic drills, having surprise inspections, talking people through why a job safety analysis makes sense or why short service employees in particular, new guys on a pad or a platform have to be given special attention. They have to be filled with confidence that they have stop work authority, that drills have to be run assuming there was an incident. So incident response drills have to be run, setting up an incident command center, coordinating with the local sheriff's department. In my mind, as far as operational issues go, that's the number one trend I see is a lack of practical compliance, even with shining examples of checklist-oriented safety management. In all fairness, us lawyers are probably to blame for a lot of that. That's a different episode. But would you agree with me that a protocol or guide that you don't follow is worse than one is worse than not having one? Absolutely, from a, especially from a litigation standpoint, because the plaintiff's lawyer is going to pull up the checklist that says anytime there's an unusual task, a JSA, job safety analysis, will be conducted, the results recorded, and that JSA form filed in the company man's shack. Okay? And when that's not done, the plaintiff's lawyer now has a roadmap to prove your incompetence because you didn't follow your own rules. And by the way, I know you're familiar with this. East Texas FTS case, FTS, the fracking company, had one of its drivers run a guy off the road on a Sunday morning coming home after church. I think the punitive damages award was $90 million. Mainly, it seems to me, and I pulled pleadings. I got pleadings from the clerk of court. I looked at the jury interrogatories. It seems to me that the jury took it out on FTS because they didn't follow their own rules. And there is some old adage about the worst, it might have been Cicero, the worst way to damn somebody is with their own words. And they pulled up FTS's safety manual and they went through it, the plaintiff's lawyers went through it with like a checklist and showed all the things that FTS didn't do. And that's, it seems to me, and based on the commentary I read, that that's why the jury punished them so much. And so if you have a guideline, 100% agree, I say this often, you have a guideline that you don't follow, you just told the world that you're incompetent or you're a liar. Right. Or you don't read your own stuff or understand your own stuff. Okay. So that's one. What's another one? Being too, there's a trend now, particularly with service contractors, less so than producers, of being too tradition bound, okay, and not recognizing tradition, giving the homage to tradition that we ought to give in the oil and gas business, but not knowing when to stop 
and reevaluate and recognize that there's an unfamiliar situation and tradition doesn't apply. And I see that with respect to contracting. I see it with regard to work practices. I see it with regard to just how the industry views itself. So that's like a, a too conservative viewpoint that is actually impacting how people do business adversely. Right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this is the way we've always we've done always it. done it. But I see this all the time with master service agreements, people being used to seeing certain language, but not understanding why that language is included or the purpose or intent behind that language. And when you've got maybe a non-traditional work or services that are going to be provided, making sure that you modify that quote unquote traditional language to account for what's needed, the intent and making sure that it gets, you know, you, you modify things to account for what the intent of the party is. I see this particularly with respect to pollution allocation. So in the industry, we have this above ground, below ground I hate pro- it. program. Sometimes it works fine yeah. that the contractor takes regardless of fault. So when there's no fault inquiry, regardless of fault, that pollution that either originates or is discharged above the surface and the operator or oil company takes that which originates, careful with that word, originates from below the surface of the ground, that doesn't make sense if I'm just causing somebody to deliver products from one place to the other. It makes sense perhaps in a drilling context, and that's it. And I think it probably originated in the IADC forms, did it not? No doubt about it, and it's been borrowed and put, and I like to say that a bunch of service contractors all went to the same convention, and they came out and they said, oh, the IADC says this is how pollution gets allocated. Well, sometimes it doesn't make sense. And then I hear this on the phone. Mr. Flanagan, your approach to allocating pollution is not traditional, and, and I have to reject it. And my response is, look, let's honor the tradition, but think about how this is going to work practically. We don't need it. And sometimes my solution is, let's just not allocate pollution. I completely agree. And the simpler, the better. And the whole purpose of indemnities is to allocate ahead of time, risk and responsibility, so that after an incident, you're not trying to fight amongst yourselves, you're have a united front and everyone can start actually responding appropriately, right? Right, because who benefits from the contractor and the operator shooting at each other, the third party? The third party and then the lawyers, unfortunately, right? So if we do a really good job, they don't need us as much. Well, we are almost out of time today. This has been really good. And I think I might have you on regularly because I'm sure the listeners are going to have so much fun listening to us banter about these nerdy legal issues. But our sponsor is Thought Trace. And so we each episode ask somebody for their kind of parting thought of the day on risk management and legal issues. So if you had two sentences to give people your parting thought of the day, what would it be? Be practical. Don't be theoretical. Don't be bound to rote tradition. Be practical. I love it. Thank you. My pleasure. If you guys could do me a favor and like, leave a review for this podcast, that's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. 